Turn to 1 John chapter 3, please. I'd like to read the first three verses together of 1 John chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. John says, Behold, carefully consider, perceive, think about, meditate on, give some serious thought to this. Now when God says behold, we ought to behold, shouldn't we? Behold. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Now, John tells us to carefully consider this because I, I know just from my own self that quite often we'll think about a truth and it'll just kind of go over the tops of our heads. We'll think about it and we say, I know what that means, and we'll go on. But he says, consider this. What manner, what kind, what sort, what type of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Now, one of the keys to understanding what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us is to think of who the us is. <laughs> what manner of love the Father bestowed on us, who's the us he's talking about? He's talking about people, that's us, sinners. People who are unlovely in themselves. People who don't have anything about them that would draw out God's love. There isn't anything in me and there isn't anything in you that would cause God to love us. That's so, isn't it? Yet he loves anyway. Now that's the kind of love he's talking about. And you know, it's, it's just hard to get a hold of this because when we think of love, far too often we think of love in human terms. And you know, Human love is always selfish love, always, without any exceptions to the rule. I love my wife. She's my wife. I love my child. Even when we try to help somebody because we say we love them, we like the way it makes us feel good about ourselves because we did help them. We get a good feeling out of it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but I'm saying we always have a selfish motive in our love. Something that I, I was thinking about, um, David and, and Pat have met our new dog. Got a dog for Christmas, name's Kiwi, little toy poodle for my daughter. 
And uh, when we first got that dog, I didn't think much of it, and it didn't think much of me. Uh, we just didn't have much affection for it. But it loved uh, my wife and daughter, Lynn and Aubrey. And when we'd, when we'd come home, if Lynn and Aubrey'd come home, that dog would get so excited and start shaking, it would actually use the bathroom in the floor when they came in. And uh, you'll see our carpet now, it's ruined, but that's another story. But when I'd get there, it'd kind of look at me and it'd just kind of turn back around and go back to what it was doing and kind of disappointment. And, and, you know, that made me mad. You know, it was like, why don't you, you know, I think it ought to like me. But at any rate, uh, it didn't. And uh, about two weeks ago, something happened. We went to, my, to see my parents and we took that dog with us. That's a, one of the slaveries of having. So you got to take those things with you everywhere you go. Seems like, but slavery, isn't it? But anyway, we took it to my parents' house and we left it there. And it didn't like my parents at all. And so when I got there, I was the first one into the door. That dog was so glad to see me that it used the bathroom when I came in. And it was glad to see me. And I started liking that dog after that. But the reason I liked it, what I'm saying is the reason I like it didn't have anything to do with the dog is because the dog made me feel good. And that's the way our love is. It's always based on something it can do for us. That might be a crude way of looking at it, but it, it was an illustration anyway. But uh, at any rate, God's love has nothing to do with, with any loveliness in us drawing it out. Totally free. The reason we love a dog or anything else is because of something it does for us, but, but not God's love. In other words, it's not conditional. It's free. There's nothing we can give him or add to him. There's nothing that he sees in us that can draw out his love for us. It's free. Now, that's the kind of love he's talking about. And if you, if you see that you're a sinner, this is good news to you. There's not one thing about me that would make God love me, but thank God he loves anyway. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Beginning in verse 6. For thou, this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel, for thou art in holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord didn't set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. Now that's why God loves you, because he did. That's because it's his nature. He must love. You know, we've said before, I've said before, you know, God didn't have to love anybody. Now, I've made that statement before, but you know, I think I was wrong about that. God's nature is to love. That's his nature. He's gracious. He must be merciful because that's his nature. Not because of any reason in us. There's no necessity in us that draws it out, but that's his nature. He must love because he is love. That's what scripture says, isn't it? God is love. Not here's love and God fits the bill. God is love. Now let me give you a, a few words that, that describe God's love. I'll give you these real briefly before we go on. I want to look at that whole passage of Scripture. But for us to understand something about God's love, i got to understand, first of all, and I think this is the most important one, God's love is in Christ. Paul talked about no one being able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love is in Christ. Now, I've heard people talk a lot of times about 
unconditional love. They say, well, God loves me unconditionally. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He loves you in Christ. Now, you've heard folks say, well, I want God to love me just the way I am. He can't do it and be God. His love is in Christ. God sees me and views me in His Son. He sees me as lovely in His Son because He sees His Son. He loves His Son and He loves me in Him. And I, I feel a lot of security in that. His love to me doesn't have anything to do with me. It's in His Son. And that's what makes me know it's eternal. It's in Christ. God's love is everlasting. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3 says, Behold, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Now this boggles my mind, but there was never a time when God began to love me. I've always been accepted in the beloved. It's everlasting going back that way and going back this direction. It'll never stop. God can't quit loving anybody he loves. God's love is discriminating. Discriminating. Now, that's not a very popular word, but I think it's a good word just for this reason. It shows folks what we're talking about. Turn to Malachi chapter 1. That's the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1. Verse 2. I've loved you, saith the Lord, yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Jacob have I loved. You're familiar with the scripture, Romans 9, 13. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That's what Paul was quoting here in Malachi chapter 1. Now what's the point behind saying God's love is discriminating? Well, it's not so much that we're glorying in the fact that he doesn't love everybody. You see, when we're talking about his hatred, when he talks about Jacob or hating Esau, remember this, God's hatred is, is not like human hatred. Our hatred is wrong. God's hatred has to do with what is right. It has to do with righteousness. But what this tells us about his discriminating love, it says if he loves you, he'll save you. Everybody he loves must be saved. That's what the point behind all this is. His love is saving love. Now, if he loves all men the same, if he loved Judas just as much as he did Peter, what did his love do for Judas? Didn't do anything for Judas, did it? If that's the case, what good is his love going to do anybody? No, his love, everybody he sets his affection on, must be saved. And that's the point behind this thing of discriminating love. It's discriminating love. It's unconditional, and that's because it's in Christ. Since it's in Christ, with regard to us, it's unconditional. He, uh, Hosea 14.3 says, Behold, I love you freely. Freely, without cause in you. His love is saving love. Ephesians 2.4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he quickened us. He gave us life together with Christ. His love is a saving love. His love is an intelligent love. And by that, by that I mean he loves you even though he knows all about you. I remember one summer I was working in a steel mill, Armco, and uh, I kind of developed a relationship with this one fella that... I talked to all the time, and that summer he got married. Uh, 
and he went on his honeymoon and everything, and he was all excited about it. And, and he came back just a week later, and I remember I was sitting there eating lunch with him, and he said, he said, if I would have known now, then I wouldn't have married her. He said, that woman's a monster, and I didn't know it. Well, <laughs> I guess that's happened on more than one occasion, but the thing of it is, God has seen everything about you, sins you haven't even committed yet. Everything, and he still loves. Isn't that glorious? It's an intelligent love. It's a sacrificial love. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave. It's a predestinating love. Ephesians one, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. Now, I want you to think about your own children. If you had it in your power to predestinate them to be saved, would you do it? Why, you know you would. God does too. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. What type, what kind of love he's bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Now, I wonder if you've ever seen a um, son or a daughter of a filthy rich person and just been a little bit envious of them. I have, whether no one else has. Maybe you're all above that, but I have. At any rate, you thought, here's somebody that's got a fortune coming to them without working for it. They got it coming to them by virtue of who they are. And not because of any merit in them, just because they're somebody's son. You do too if you're a believer. Sons of God. Now somebody says, how can I know if I'm a son of God? Well, John chapter 1 verse 12 says, but as many as received him, to them gave he the right, the power, the privilege to become the sons of God. Now that's how one becomes a son. That's how I can know if I'm a son. To as many as received him. Now what's it mean? Well, first of all, you receive him. That means you receive him for who he is. Now do you do that? When you hear of the Christ of the Bible, the Christ who is absolutely on the throne, the Christ who is holy, the Christ who is sovereign, the Christ who is the first cause behind everything, the Christ who saved his people from their sins, when you hear of that Christ, do you receive him? Would you want him to be any different? I wouldn't change him if I could. To as many as received him. You receive his person and you receive his work. To as many as received him. That has to something to do with receiving his work. Receiving what he did, in other words. You know, we make a, a statement. And I think maybe I've I, I made it. And I'm not so sure it's a good statement. We say, be patient with me. God's not finished with me yet. Maybe you all said that too. I, I think I've said it before. Be patient with me. Not God, God's not finished with me yet. You know, that ain't all that good of a statement, really, though. I like this one better. It's finished. <laughs> That's scriptural, isn't it? It's finished. Now, just receive that. It's finished. That means there isn't anything left to do. I'm complete in him. Have you ever received that? It's finished. And you receive him. You receive him. What's it mean to receive something? Well, I remember... Um, one time when I was in college, I didn't have the money to pay the rent. And it just so happened, coincidentally, 
course, that a big check came in the mail from somebody I didn't even know. Money to pay the rent. Well, I didn't send it back to him and say, you know, I didn't work for this. I don't want it. I received it. I received it freely. To as many as received him, to them gave you the power, the right, or the privilege to become the sons of God. And then David quoted this, Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. They know religion, but they don't know, recognize, or love what we're talking about now, because they knew him not. The world is unimpressed with the believer. But you know the believer's unimpressed with the world too, aren't they? Verse 2, let's go on reading. John says, Beloved, now, right now, now are we the sons of God. Present tense. Right now we are the sons of God. Now, when the devil tempted the Lord, I always think that's a hard, hard thing to even talk about because there's a very real sense. The Lord couldn't be tempted in the sense of, of sinning. He, he couldn't sin. Yet the devil tempted him. And what did he tempt him with? He said, if you're the son of God. He tempted his sonship. And if we can always be questioning our sonship, it's going to make us miserable, isn't it? If we don't have assurance. Well, John says, beloved, now are we the son of God. And if you trust Christ right now, you're a son. 1 John 4, 17 says, as he is, so are we in the world right now. It doesn't say right now, it's just as he is, so are we in the world. But which means that's the way we are right now. How is he? He's accepted with the Father. So am I right now. He's loved by the Father. So am I right now. He's righteous before the Father. So am I in him right now. As he is, so are we in the world right now. Everything he is right now, I am too in him. Now somebody says, but I don't feel it. But you're not commanded to feel it. You're commanded to believe it. There's a lot of difference between feeling something and believing something. I'm commanded to believe it on the testimony of God's word. Beloved now, are we the sons of God? And then John goes on to say, And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. I can understand him saying that. Doesn't matter whether I can understand it, him saying that or not, but I can. When he says, It doth not yet appear what we shall be. How much do you understand about absolute holiness? Can you imagine what it would be like to not sin? I can't even conceive of it. And John couldn't either. He says it doesn't appear what we shall be. We don't even know what we are right now. You know, somebody called me just this week and they made this statement to me. They said, uh, I'm just trying to find out who I am. And I thought, you don't want to know who you are. <laughs> Do you? 
Would you like to know exactly how bad you, I don't want to know. You know, really, that's a silly question, if you think about it. You know, I'm trying to find out who I am. I, I, I wish I would have said something, but I didn't. I, um, I, I don't know what I am now, and I sure can't understand what it is to be holy. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. We just can't understand that. Holiness. We have no point of reference in and of ourselves. We don't know what we shall be. You know, a lot of folks imply that the child of God just keeps getting holier until he's finally ripe for heaven. Now, I definitely know, and we're going to get to this in just a few minutes, I know that the Bible does teach that there is such a thing as growth in grace and growth in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. The believer does grow in grace. But as far as, as um, growing more holy, I still have an old man, and you do too. It's the man Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7. It's a man who is, who is sinful, who is corrupt, who is debauched, who is self-righteous. I could go on and on describing this man, and I couldn't even hit the tip of the iceberg, but he doesn't improve. He's the old man, and he doesn't get any holier. Now, there's a growth in grace, but remember, it's growth in grace. <laughs> growth in grace. But, but when we start talking about what real holiness is, that's, that's above this sinner's head. Matter of fact, I almost feel guilty a lot of times taking the word in my mouth. Holiness. How much do I know about it? Turn to Isaiah 65. This is, this is what God talks about folks who talk about their holiness. Here's, here's what he thinks of it. God's talking about these people in verse 5 which say, this is God speaking in Isaiah 65, which say, stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. Now that's where that term comes from, holier than thou. These folks who say, I'm holier than thou. What does God say about them? They're smoking my nose. A fire that burneth all the day. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be. Let's go back to the text. Beloved, now, verse 2, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know, here's something we do know, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Now, there's just so much that we don't know, but here's something we do know. We know that when he shall appear, we'll be like him for we shall see him as he is. Now here's an appearing I anxiously wait. We know that when he shall appear. Now have you ever looked at that scripture in, in Hebrews 9, 28 says, but unto them which look for him shall he appear without the second time without sin unto salvation. Now I've read that verse wrong for years and years. I've always read it as those that look for his appearing. For some reason. I don't know why I've read it that way, but I always have. But that's not the way it reads. Or is unto those that look for him. They look for him, shall he appear. Now, I look for him. I do do that. I look for him. I look for him in his word. I look for him when I hear the word preached. I look for him as my only hope of acceptance. I look for him as my righteousness. I'll tell you what, on judgment day, when I'm called to stand to give an account for myself, I'm going to be looking for him to answer for me. 
Now, that's what he's talking about when he's talking about looking for him. I've got a little sister that um, that I all my life I, I'll, I'll start getting on her when I shouldn't, but but I do sometimes. I don't have any business doing it, but I I'll get on her. My mom will be sitting there instead of answering me. She'll look over to my mom to answer for her, and then my mom will take up for her and she'll put me in my place. But um, that is exactly what the believer does. I look to Christ to answer for me. I'm not even going to try to answer on my own. I look to him to answer for me. But to them that look for him shall he appear. Now, he talks about this appearing. We know that when he shall appear, and we're looking for that, his appearing, we know that when he shall appear, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We'll see him as he is. Not as he was. We're not going to see him in a manger. We're not going to see him as a man of sorrows. We're not going to see him even on a cross, but we're going to see him as he is. Enthroned as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, as the only Savior. We'll see him as he is. Somebody says, how will I know it's him? You'll know. You'll know by the brightness of his face. You'll know by the wounds in his hands and his feet. You'll know his voice. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. You'll know. But notice, Paul says, or John says, we shall see him as he is. And the reason he says we shall see him as he is is because right now we don't really see him as he is. We just don't see him the way we want to, do we? I think of seeing Christ, and it's almost unimaginable. Well, it is unimaginable. And, but John says we don't know what we're talking about. Even in this passage, he says we don't know what we're going to be like when we see him. It's unimaginable, but it's something we shall. Now, now, why is it that we have such a hard time seeing him? Well, I can tell you exactly why it's so hard. S-I-N. Sin. Unbelief and sin clouds the view. So we can't see him the way we want to. Now, you know what it's like when you got guilt on your conscience and somebody's talking to you and you got to look down because you're ashamed to look him dead in the eye? Now, can you imagine being able to look Christ dead in the eye without shame? Without being embarrassed about yourself? Without being humiliated about yourself? Well, beloved, it's going to happen. Because you're going to be just like him when you see him like this. We know that when he'll appear, we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. You're not going to see him as he is until you're just like him because you can't see him until you're just like him. But one of these days, every child of God will be just like him. We'll see him as he is. Somebody says, how's that going to take place? Well, God will change us. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll all be changed. Now, the only way we can see him is if we're like him, and that side of him will cause us to be like him. Now, this is the future of every child of God. We're going to see him as he is, and we're going to be just like him. Now, let's go on reading verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself 
even as he is pure. Every man that hath this hope in him. Now the key to understanding that verse is the little phrase in him. Every man that hath this hope in him. Where's your hope? What's well, not in here? It's not out here anywhere. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's what my hope is. It's a hope based upon Christ. It's, it's in him. It's not in me. It's not in you. It's not in any man. It's not in anything that has anything to do with me. It's wholly in him. That's where my hope is. You know, the scripture actually says in Romans 8, I think it's verse 24, we're saved by hope. And we are. we got a good hope in Christ. Every man that hath this hope, this hope in Christ Jesus the Lord, and this is the hope I have. I have a hope that when I stand before God on judgment day, that the eyes of the thrice holy God is going to look at me and say he's not guilty. Justified through Christ. Because right, Christ's righteousness is counted to me. My sin was placed upon him. He put my sin away. And now before the eyes of God himself, I'm without sin. And I don't have anything to feel guilty about in Christ. You know, somehow we get the idea, and I know I do this, somehow we think by, we almost purge ourselves by being guilt, feeling guilty. We're going to always deal with that as long as we're in the flesh. I realize that, but in Christ, I don't have any guilt. That, that's almost scary to say that, but it's so. In Christ, I don't, that's my hope. I'm going to stand before God without guilt. Now he says, everybody, no exceptions to this rule, everybody that has this hope, in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Now I want you to understand this. What he's talking about is not some passive thing. It's active. You're actively seeking to purify yourself if you have this hope in him. That word purify is taken out of the word that means chaste, that person who has this hope seeks to be chaste to Christ. He seeks to honor him in all things and to look nowhere else for anything. He purifies himself. That which is contrary to Christ, that which is unchaste and evil and sinful, they strive against it. They seek to mortify the flesh. They seek to strive against sin. Everything that is contrary to Christ, they seek to drive away from themselves. They don't give in to sin. They don't give in to sin. They seek to be like Christ. Whatever's contrary to Christ, they seek to put it out. They want to be pure and holy. And John says, everybody that has this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Now, here's the key to understanding this, though. Notice he didn't say everybody that has this hope in him has purified himself. If it said that, I'd be in big trouble, and you would too, wouldn't you? But that's not what it says. It means they're in the act of doing it. But what's that mean? Well, it means this. I'm sitting there while I'm preaching to you. I'm telling you, every, every believer 
that has this hope in him purifies himself. He seeks to strive against sin. And even while I'm talking to you, there's something that in the back of my mind that's saying, hypocrite. You don't do anywhere near striving against sin the way you ought to. I know that. And I'm ashamed of it, but I'll tell you this. It didn't say you've purified. It says you're in the midst of doing it. In other words, you're in the midst of this battle. You're, you're, you're mortifying the flesh right now. That means you're sinning and you're asking God for forgiveness. You're, you're, you're seeking to not do it again. You go out and do it again. You start the same process over and over again. And I'm talking about sins of the heart. I'm not just talking about the outward things. I'm talking about what, what's in me, that, that evil heart of unbelief, that debauched nature. You go on down the line. I'm dealing with it every day in the purifying, seeking, seeking to honor, asking God to, to cleanse me and, and, and seeking to honor him and, and, and falling and picking myself up again it, it, or him picking me up again. Of course, I don't pick myself up. But it's a, it's a continual thing. You're in, the, you're in the battle right now. Now, Paul said this to the Galatians. He said in Galatians 5, 17, the flesh lusts, it wars against the spirit. And the spirit wars or lusts against the flesh. These are contrary the one to another so that you can't do the things that you would. You get up in the morning and you say, I'm not going to sin today. I'm going to seek to honor God in every way that I can within one second. You broke your promise. You can't, can you? You can't. Your flesh won't let you. But then there's another part of you that says, I'm going to be a monster. I'm going to do things that are unimaginable. And you know you'd do them if God didn't keep you, but you can't. The Spirit of God won't let you. There's a battle going on at all times, and that's what John is referring to, this thing of purifying himself, even as he is pure. It's not talking about a, a completed act. As a matter of fact, I, I'm, I'm sure this is right. A true child of God doesn't believe he's kept one of God's commandments one time. Isn't that so? I haven't kept one commandment one time. I've heard people talk about the law of God. Listen, I love the law of God. I love God's holy law. And I've heard people say, well, you can keep it partially, since when is partial obedience obedience? If your kids obey you partially, is that okay? No, it's all disobedience. And, and, and in, in saying this thing about purifying myself, I don't feel pure, but I'm purifying myself in this sense. I'm asking God to purify me. I'm asking God to enable me to walk in the way that he'd have me walk. I fall every time I say it, but I'm still in that process. And that's the battle he's talking about there in Romans chapter 7. That which I hate, I do. What I want to do, I don't end up doing. It's the process of purifying yourself. He says, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Thank God this war will have an end. Bless God. One day soon, I'm going to see him as he is. My wicked nature and my sin isn't going to be clouding the view. I'm going to see him in his glory. 
I'm going to see him in his beauty and I'll be able to look at him dead in the eye without shame because I'm going to be so clothed in his righteousness and it's who is it? Uh, somebody said it's, it's no cardboard righteousness, no, no, no paste on righteousness. I'm actually going to be him through and through. And I'll be able, and every believer will be able to see him as he is. And everybody that has this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Now, is that your goal? David said in Psalm 17, 15, as for me, I'll behold thy face in righteousness. I'll be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. David, I will too. Amen.